Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. Well, Gene, there's lots of news per usual this week in our corner of the intelligence and security world from growing tension between the U.S., the European Union, and China over Taiwan to questions about Israeli involvement in the Sudan coup, which we wrote about over at the Spy Talk newsletter, to yet more developments related to the so-called Havana syndrome. And there's continuing and growing concern about white extremists in local police forces, right, Gene? Yeah, Jeff, police officers are supposed to uphold the law, right? That's what they swear to do. But former officers were allegedly in the crowd that stormed the Capitol on January 6th. And that is just one of many signs that extremist anti-government ideology has taken root in law enforcement. One former cop says it is there and it isn't hard to spot. Law enforcement agencies, and I don't say this to be flippant, law enforcement agencies are like elementary school. If, if you go to elementary school and ask the kids who the bully is, they don't stutter, they know who it is. So if you go to agencies and ask who the problem officers are, they know who they are. Now dealing with them, and more importantly, removing them to the point of termination is a whole different conversation that's extremely difficult to do. More of my conversation with former police officer and former FBI special agent Errol Southers about radicalization in law enforcement coming up in just a bit. Meanwhile, we're coming up on yet another sad anniversary, the 58th of the November 22nd, 1963 assassination of President John F. Kennedy. In 1967, CBS News broadcast a special report on the findings of the Warren Commission the blue ribbon panel that investigated the murder, which declared Kennedy was killed by a lone assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald. There was no conspiracy involving others, according to the panel, CBS News anchor Walter Cronkite reported. And that was to be that, an official version of the assassination, arrived at by men of unimpeachable credentials after what the world was assured was the most searching investigation in history. Yet, in the two and a half years since the Warren Report, a steady and growing stream of books, magazine articles, even plays and a motion picture have challenged the commission and its findings, have offered new theories, new assassins, and new reason. That was CBS anchor Walter Cronkite. Doubts about the official findings on the Kennedy assassination have only grown since then, from questions about other gunmen and the number of shots fired to revelations that the CIA's involvement with Oswald were far deeper than the Warren Commission reported, and much, much more. Authoritative experts on the assassination, including Jefferson Morley, a former Washington Post reporter who's written two well-received books relating to it, have repeatedly argued that the only way to clear up the enduring mysteries not to mention the wildest conspiracy theories about Kennedy's murder, are for the government to declassify the tens of thousands of documents that remain secret after all these decades. And yet last month, President Biden, following the lead of so many presidents before him, refused to do so, kicking the Kennedy assassination can down the road once again. Last week, 
I asked Morley why. Jefferson Morley, welcome to Spy Talk. Recently in the Washington Post, you were quoted as saying that officials, the CIA mainly, I think you mean, had engaged in 29 years of stonewalling. You called it a ruse. Almost 60 years has passed since the assassination of President Kennedy on November 22nd, 1963. What are they hiding? They're hiding three things, Jeff. One is uh, the, the details of Operation Northwoods, which was a secret Pentagon CIA plan to provoke a war with Cuba in 1963. Some material in those files is still redacted. They are hiding the CIA's pre-assassination file on Lee Harvey Oswald, which was far more extensive than any investigators were ever told. And they're hiding a couple of histories of CIA stations, the Miami station and the Mexico City station, two stations that were very involved in the events leading up to the assassination and afterwards. And that material is redacted. They're hiding material about their CIA activities in New Orleans and Miami in 1963, also relevant to the assassination. And finally, some of the redacted documents concern CIA plot to assassinate Fidel Castro, and a lot of details in those documents are redacted. So we know that there are 15,000 documents containing redactions that have never been made public in the JFK collection. Probably 80% of those are CIA records. So when I talk about these records, I'm really talking about CIA records. A small proportion are FBI and DOD, but mm -hmm. in the main, we're talking about CIA records. Mm -hmm. Now, there's been a lot of reporting on the things that you mentioned over the years, of course, 60 years of reporting, but especially over the last, say, 30 years, a lot of revelations have come out, leaked yeah. out, or been dug up by investigative reporters no less than yourself on these issues. Right. Are you looking for confirmation of stuff we already know, or do you think that there are real surprises in these documents? Well, you know, people always talk about a smoking gun, you know, and I never met an investigative reporter who goes out looking for a smoking gun. If you do your reporting properly and you cover the groundwork, you may be lucky and a, and a smoking gun at the end of that process falls into your lap. I think of these JFK records more as a mosaic. There's a lot of pieces missing in the mosaic. And what we will get if and when these documents are released is we will fill in the mosaic and the complete picture, I think, may be surprising. Any one piece may not be decisive, but the big picture, I think, will be very revealing. Now, here, here's, uh, I can't agree with you more. I mean, we just want the whole context of that time and the assassination and what intelligence activities were going on mm -hmm. around the assassination, as well as, you know, what really happened. Now, if there was a lone gunman involved, as the officials uh, of the Warren Commission concluded, how can officials argue that these records need to be kept secret? That's, that seems to be the conundrum here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's self-evident that, you know, the reason they're not releasing the records, and I might say, might add, you know, they sh the records by law were supposed to be released in October 2017, and they blew right through that deadline with the permission of President Trump. Four years later, uh, Trump's order mandated reconsideration of that, and they blew through the second deadline. So I can't have any confidence that they're serious about obeying the law. You know, they're just they're not doing it. So the only conclusion you can draw when they're hiding all these records 
is that they have something to hide. Mm. Now, you will hear, hear the argument, they're, they're hiding things that are not related to the Kennedy assassination, but are very important to national security today. You know, like that what? argument might be plausible if we weren't talking about, you know, 10 or 15,000 documents. If they said, you know, here's 50 documents, here's a dozen documents that contain sensitive information, and you can see the rest, I would believe that. But when they're hiding so much, you cannot have any confidence that they're not hiding something important. In fact, I think, it, I think to the opposite, it stands to reason that they are hiding something important. Yeah. You know, uh, James K. Uh, Galbraith, the economist, mm -hmm. who has railed against the damage of wars to our economy, uh -huh. he recently lambasted the continuing suppression of the JFK assassination records. He wrote recently that the irony is that by withholding the records, the government has already admitted without saying so that the Warren Commission lied and that there are vile secrets which it is determined to protect, it concedes without saying so that there was a conspiracy and that there is an ongoing cover-up. If there were not, all the records would have been released long ago. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to see this. Now, President Biden has argued in the past that these records should be released, but why did he sign an order keeping them suppressed? Do you believe his excuse that uh, COVID prevented uh, you know, declassification, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, the COVID dog ate my homework is the excuse. I mean, it's <laughs> truly absurd. The CIA had four years to prepare for this declassification. To blame COVID at the end is, it's just an excuse. And I, I think it's a ruse. The CIA knows, and James Galbraith is right, the CIA knows they have a problem. That's why they're trying to blow through the mandate of the law. Because if they obey the law, their problem is going to be very obvious to everybody. So I think what happened was the CIA came and said, we couldn't possibly release this. Biden has more important things to worry about. And I think he said, guys, get serious and come back with a real disclosure you know, in six weeks. So we'll see what they do. I think that they're delaying. Because remember, you know, the CIA record, give them credit from day one their attitude about Kennedy's assassination and providing information that was relevant to it, their strategy has been deception, deceit, and delay. And that started on November 22nd when the CIA told the FBI falsely that they only had about five pieces of information about Oswald in their files. That was a lie. They actually had about 45 pieces of information. The reason was they'd been watching him for a long time. So ever since then, they've been denying delaying because they don't want to talk about how much they knew about Oswald before President Kennedy was killed. That's their problem. And so they're trying to slow down now so that they don't ever have to get in a position where they have to concede that. You know, people say to me, Jeff, you know, this stuff happened so long ago. You know, like, why can't they just, whatever, whatever the story is, just put it out there. But you got to remember, such a revelation would have political and budgetary implications today. Right? How's that? Well, if something highly embarrassing comes out about the CIA and JFK's assassination, you know, some congressman on the Hill is going to say, well, you know, we're going to cut your budget or we want a reorganization. We want an explanation. It would be create political problems for the agency today. And James Galbraith also points out it's going to create problems for all those officials who are in those jobs today who've been sitting on this information and not releasing it. So, 
They have a budgetary problem and they have a personnel problem. Just quickly, has any significant member of Congress, the Senate or House, uh, threatened to withhold funding from the CIA unless they release the documents? No, I mean, some congressmen have been pressing the CIA to release. About seven Democratic congressmen signed a letter in October calling for full disclosure. Um, but, you know, Congress has not really been engaged on this issue. And unless Congress holds the executive branch accountable, you know, I, I'm afraid the CIA is going to get away with their with their delaying tactics. Just quickly, Jeff, instruct us on how this suppression works. Is it the CIA director who says we don't want these documents released? Does he have control over them? How does it work? Um, no, I mean, these are records that were that are part of the JFK records collection in the National Archives. Mm -hmm. These are records that were made available to all the different investigations um, of the assassination. They are controlled by the National Archives now with the redactions put in place by the agency. So I doubt that it gets up to the highest level, but I think that when it's passed up to the to senior levels of CIA, they're, they're curious like everybody else, like what's in these files. So I assume that senior CIA officials are educated about the contents of these files, maybe not up to the director level, but certainly the head of the Office of Historical Review, that's kind of the in-house history department of the CIA, certainly the director of operations, a lot of these are operational records, those people are probably informed about what's in these records. Do you think that they meet in a room periodically to go over these documents and say, nope, we're not going to release this? Can you put some flesh on exactly the people who are sitting on these documents? You know, that's a very good question. We, we don't know who's in charge of releasing material when they do it. Huh. Um, I think the Office of Historical Review is important. I think the, the Directorate of Operations is also important because they're going to have the final say on whether, you know, is this a sources and methods issue? So senior people are looking at these records and holding back. Given the scope of the withholding, it's got to be at a pretty high level in the CIA. Mm. Well, I don't want to go deep into the wormhole here again. <laughs> but what you've uh, written about is that uh, the CIA was deeply involved in surveilling Lee Harvey Oswald when he was in Mexico. Why would they be embarrassed about that now? Well, um, yeah, good question. If, if this guy just wandered past them and, um, you know, killed the president and, you know, we didn't know anything about it. Well, you know, yeah, why not? I mean, the problem with that story is, is that they did know a whole lot about Oswald and they lied about it. And so top CIA officials were informed about Oswald's presence in Mexico City seven weeks before the assassination. There were multiple security issues raised by that visit. Oswald was a leftist. He'd had a security clearance. He'd lived in the Soviet Union. He had a Russian wife. He'd been arrested. And most importantly, in Mexico City, he had been in contact with people who were presumed to be Cuban and Russian intelligence agents. And for all of that information, top CIA officials took no action. So when we talk about, let's look at the records of that, you're talking about something that is highly embarrassing to them because if it's true, and I'm not saying it's true, but if it were true that this guy killed the president for no reason, he slipped through the fingers of top CIA officials mm -hmm. and the CIA really doesn't want to talk about it. Sure. That. Yeah. But 60 years, <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. So, you know, why, why couldn't they come clean on it? I think they might. And I have hopes that they actually 
realize that they've got a problem and they should solve it by coming clean yeah. and saying, you know, we didn't know about this, but we're going to do the right thing now. Yeah. That would be the way to rescue their credibility. You know, I don't think that's going to happen, but it might. What they're doing just adds fuel to the deep state narrative. It does. And, you know, I've had people come up to me, people, friends who are, you know, like Jeff, you know, one guy killed the president, you know, like it's not a big deal. You know, people who believe the official story, who want to believe the official story. And one friend of mine came up and said, Jeff, you're right. They're hiding something. You know, I mean, to blow the deadline once, okay. To blow the deadline twice, they're not acting in good faith, at least prima facie, they're not acting in good faith. And so that, you know, if somebody's not acting in good faith, you're going to start asking questions. Okay, Jeff Morley, wrapping it up now. So, they say now that the documents will be released in two batches, one later this year and another in late 2022. That's what Biden said. Right. You believe that? I do not believe that. I mean, you know, the dog ate my homework. I mean, the, the excuses are pretty poor now. I think they're kicking the can down the road and hoping that people will forget this or maybe there'll be a new president and they can come up with a new line for him. I mean, their ex explanations have not been credible so far. So it's very hard to trust them going forward. I hope to be disappointed, but their record is very poor. You know, 58 years of delay, deception, deceit. It's not, you can't be optimistic about their, them acting in good faith, you know, in a month or a year. Well, Jeff Morley, this has been fascinating, if <laughs> glum. Um, thanks for coming on the Spy Talk podcast <laughs> to talk about it. Thanks for having me, Jeff. That's Jefferson Morley. His next book, Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate, which recounts the complex and fateful relationship between President Richard Nixon and CIA Director Richard Helms, will be published by St. Martin's Press next June on the 50th anniversary of the break-in. So here's a little memory for you. Before the Kennedy Library was built, a lot of the things that eventually went in the Kennedy Library were stored in a federal record center in my hometown. And for some reason, I do not remember. As a high school student, some of us were given access to this federal record center. As a small child watching the aftermath of the assassination, one of the really strong visual memories for me was of Black Jack the horse trotting down Pennsylvania Avenue with the boots backwards in the saddle. So I walk into this federal record center as a high school student. What's right in front of me? The saddle with the boots backwards in the stirrups. In addition, his rocking chair, his golf cart, and I can't tell you how many file cabinets full of documents. Unfortunately, Jeff, I doubt very much that those classified documents that you would like to read were amongst those that were sitting there in that record center and now are in the Kennedy Library. They surely were not there. But what a fascinating memory, Gene. I'd never heard that story from you before. My own story was that I was uh, down in the Virgin Islands when the assassination took place, so I, and there was no TV down there. I, so I saw none of the famous, you know, film or live television of uh, the assassination of, of Oswald himself, the famous uh, funeral cortege of the lying in state, the burial uh, at Arlington National Cemetery. I missed all that. So my memories are very, very different of the assassination. I listened to it all on Voice of America. So and what an interesting piece of it you have yourself. It was uh, quite an experience and quite um, 
uh, startling to me as a teenager to come face to face with these with these artifacts of the Kennedy administration and of the assassination. We're going to be back. A reminder that you can find Spy Talk on Substack. You should subscribe there. We'll be back in a moment to talk about extremism in the police. When the Capitol was attacked on January 6th, police were attacked too, violently. One police officer died of his injuries. Since then, several others have committed suicide. So it was mind-blowing to learn that former members of law enforcement were allegedly in the mob. Then the epic hack revealed that former and current law enforcement officers were members of the Oath Keepers, an armed extremist anti-government group. Errol Southers wasn't that surprised. He teaches about radicalization, recruitment, and extremism at the University of Southern California and brings to the job decades of experience as a San Diego cop and an FBI special agent. I asked him how pervasive extremist ideologies are within law enforcement. Well, that's a great question. And I'm going to go back a half a century when the FBI was looking at the civil rights movement and the Klan and realized that they were dealing with sheriffs whose deputies were in the Klan. So I will say what I always say and not as an excuse. As long as law enforcement recruits from the human race, our screening and our background checks are only going to be as effective as they can be because we're going to have people that get in there and they are who they are. We also have people, I think, which is a bigger problem now, Gene, of people who get into these organizations and if you will, get recruited. Um, I work with a group called Life After Hate. It was found, you probably know who they are. They're largely right-wing, uh, but we work with all extremist ideologies from jihadists to neo-Nazis. And they've talked to me extensively about their strategies over the last several decades to recruit police officers and military personnel because of the unique skill sets that they do have. So I think it is a problem I'm glad that it's a problem that's being acknowledged. As a matter of fact, my center, the Safe Communities Institute, we put our first extremist and law enforcement class on last weekend, and we had a waiting list. So that's encouraging because the biggest problem we have is that organizations don't acknowledge the problem exists. And I think we're getting there now, and that's going to help. Tell me about this course. Who is it for? This course is for law enforcement. It is being put on by Tony McAleer, who was one of the co-founders of Life After Hate. He's a former neo-Nazi who grew up in Canada, now lives in the United States. And Heidi Byrick, who used to be a director at the Southern Poverty Law Center. And so they're putting it on on what it is, what it looks like, how to identify it, and how to, if you will, mitigate it and neutralize it if it happens in your agency. And I was really pleased to see the turnout was incredible. So... Do they or you have the answers to those questions? How do you spot it? What do you do about it? How do you get rid of it? We do. And I have to say that, unfortunately, you know, there's a culture in law enforcement of that brand, if you will. Um, law enforcement agencies, and I don't say this to be flippant, law enforcement agencies are like elementary school. If, if you go to elementary school and ask the kids who the bully is, they don't stutter. They know who it is. So if you go to agencies and ask who the problem officers are, they know who they are. Now, dealing with them and more importantly, 
removing them to the point of termination is a whole different conversation that's extremely difficult to do. What we're trying to make people understand is there's a First Amendment right, and then there's a First Amendment right that you have as a police officer that in my world is very different. There's a different threshold. And the same threshold I hold for myself as a professor. There's things I would love to say, but I know if I say it, it's not gonna be Errol Southers, it's gonna be Professor Errol Southers from USC. And so I think that's what we have to get agencies to understand. Yes, they do know it exists. Yes, they do know who they are, but now bringing it to light and doing something about it is a different process and a different policy action that has to happen. You mentioned that it's hard to weed them out, even when they're identified. Talk to me about that. Well, it's hard to weed them out because unfortunately, they'll be amongst the clique inside their own organization that accepts that behavior. And you don't get to stay with that clique if you don't adhere to that behavior. Um, whistleblowers have their way of being dealt with, and officers know that. And then, of course, with as we have in California, Peace Officer Bill of Rights and unions, it's extremely difficult because what they'll do if they finally are outed as someone who's in that extremist vein, it'll be a conversation about First Amendment constitutional rights. And so that's where it gets really interesting. Um, and that's where a lot of folks, I would imagine, as prosecution proceeds with January 6th, no doubt you're going to hear that, but I have seen several chiefs across the country decide to take the hard line, bite the bullet, no pun intended, and fire people. When you talk about it in terms of a clique, it makes it sound like there are a lot of them. Brings me back to that question. How pervasive is this problem? It depends. Um, I'm going to be a little aggressive here. A lot. To me, one is too many. <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, officers and deputies and organizations form around what they do. I mean, I work gangs. So all the gang officers I work with, we all hung out together. We all knew each other. We all went on and investigated cases together. Same with narcotics officers. When I was on SWAT, you know, SWAT was my family. So, you know, unfortunately there are behaviors that could be associated with those special details, especially um, that become acceptable. And that fine line between right and wrong gets blurred. And that's where we have problems. You mentioned that police officers are often recruited. Are there other things factoring into this radicalization? Things like defund the police, vaccine mandates, BLM? You've named three at the top of this hit parade. Um, I'm one of those folks who wrote an article entitled Don't Defund the Police as soon as that slogan came out. Now, let me explain it. I don't believe defunding the police is the answer, nor do most people who say defund the police. But it was an attention getter and it worked because to say reallocate funds, reform, reimagine, all those real nice words that we can use at church, that didn't work. As soon as they started talking about police department's budgets, everybody slammed on the brakes and said, whoa, wait a second. So for that part of it, I will give them credit. Unfortunately, it is not the answer. And for all the reasons I put in my article about all the bad things that can happen when you reduce police resources, um, we all know that. I mean, I'm just gonna speak to one if I may. We did a study here in South LA on the fact that calls for service in areas that we had gang trouble continued to be high. 
So those communities where people may think Black Lives Matter or some other activists typically come from, they are relying on the police. They want to have safety. They want to have security. They want to have crimes investigated. So that notion that they don't want the police, I think is a little bit overblown, but as a marketing tool, don't defund the police got the attention that it wanted. And departments have wrestled now with some changes that they're gonna be trying to make. And has it fueled the radicalization of members oh, of police forces? Absolutely. You know, the, the, I teach a course, as you know, on homegrown violent extremism. And absolutism is item number one when it comes to the police. They feel that way about activists. They feel that way about the media. They feel that way about the communities. And when I listen to these officers coming to our classes, they, have, they are victims with a capital V. Nobody likes us. Nobody cares about us. We have to take care of ourselves. And I have to have a conversation with them. I said, you know, you sound like the terrorists and extremists that I talk to who say that they're all right and you're all wrong. You don't understand us. They become as intolerant now about the communities they serve as some of these extremists on the other parallels that we talk about. And so, yes, this movement of defund the police has widened the divide. And unfortunately, they've been painted, the police, with a broad brush. And the communities are being painted with a broad brush. What we're trying to do now is restore that bridge between the two. That sounds like a really tough job. It is. But I'm going to say, as I always say, there are more good people in law enforcement than not. There are more good people in the community than not. And it's a matter of numbers. And we just need to make sure that those people are at the same table and they can address these challenges together. When you tell police officers that they sound like international terrorists that you've spoken to, what's their reaction? Oh my God, they lose their minds because there's two things that police officers don't want to be called. They don't want to be called violent extremists or terrorists and they don't want to be called racist. That's a real attention getter. It's, you know, they're pejorative terms. People don't want to be labeled that way. And I have to say to them, I say, okay, well, you're in my class now. Let's look at the boxes here. Um, do you feel someone alienated from the mainstream? Well, yes, it's us versus them, okay. Um, are there civilians involved in, do you have, have you adopted a legitimizing ideology? In other words, that you're right. Well, yeah, okay. And that third box of the enabling community, that's all the rest of you cops. So if you look at an alienated individual with a legitimizing ideology in an enabling community, I said, you've checked all three boxes that terrorists check. And then there's a pause. We've been talking about this in terms of the police. You've also been in the FBI, however, and uh, you also are familiar with CBP and ICE and other law enforcement agencies. Is the same problem in existence in those agencies as in local police? I'm going to have to say yes. I, I would be remiss if I didn't say yes. And again, I'm going to abide by my own motto, which is a famous saying by a, a, a data scientist named W. Edwards Deming. Without data, you're just someone with an opinion. So I'm only giving you an opinion right now. Um, knowing what I know about law enforcement, knowing what I know about federal agencies, I have to believe they exist. I am going to say this though, and it's not a commercial or self-serving. Um, my time in the Bureau 
was probably one of the four of the best years of my life. I was the only black agent in the entire San Diego division. There was never every, any issue of racism. We were one big family. We never had any, any issues of corruption. Now, as we talk about what's happening in America today, especially with like CBP and those more challenging issues as we're talking about immigrants, human trafficking, drugs, I can't imagine that they don't have the same challenges on the extremism end as local law enforcement because of the things that they deal with. Going back to law enforcement, there have been so many instances of police behaving badly. Um, George Floyd being the most dramatic example. And yet one reads that bad officers who are fired, you said it's hard to do, but some are fired, move from department to department. Now you've started a misconduct registry. Talk to me about what that and what you hope it does. Thank you. We've started the Lewis Registry named after John Lewis. The acronym stands for Law Enforcement Work Inquiry System. And that registry is documenting officers who have been fired or resigned due to misconduct. It is really difficult to fire an officer, I can certainly tell you as a former assistant chief. And Gene, 23% of the officers in the country who get fired get reinstated. There are three states, Hawaii, New Jersey, and Rhode Island, that if you get fired, you keep your certification. So you could move to another agency in the state or move to another state. The problem is that in data in a study that was put together at Yale Law School last year, officers who, what they call, bounce to another department, not only get in trouble after they've been fired elsewhere, the trouble is worse. And so what we're doing now is documenting open source information so we're not compromising, compromising any former officers' safety or security of officers who've been fired so they don't get rehired. Let me give you a quick example. There's an officer in New Jersey now who is 33 years old. He is on his ninth department. He has been fired three times. And the only reason you don't know his name is he hasn't killed anybody yet. Why do we have to have that? And I'm really aggressive about this. I want the best of the best being in law enforcement. Communities should accept no less. And that's what we're trying to be able to help provide. So you're creating this registry is there an indication that law enforcement agencies are going to use it? I'm glad you said that. So you know me, now I'll go back to my saying of without data, you're just someone with an opinion. So let me talk about political affiliation and I'll talk about cops. We did a survey, we first started working in a registry about a year and a half ago across all three political parties. 83% of the people we surveyed in a YouGov survey said they would support a registry, a national registry documenting officers fired from misconduct. 74% Republican, 76% independent, 90% Democrat. This past summer, we did a survey of 365 law enforcement executives, mostly municipal department chiefs. We asked them a whole array of questions, but I'll give you the top two. The first one was, would you support a national registry of officers who have been fired for misconduct? 74% said yes. The second question was whether you support it or not, would you use this registry as part of your screening process for new applicants, 95% of the chiefs said yes. Would you say American policing is in crisis? Yes, I'm not even gonna flinch. Yes, it is, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. It's in crisis because we've been in denial for decades. We've been in denial 
that we have a problem. We've been in denial that it doesn't exist. And most importantly, we've been in denial that the only people who can fix it is us. Where do you think policing will be in five years? I would hope that policing will be more of a model that is interdisciplinary, using skills and resources that are appropriate for the calls for service that they're getting. And what about extremism in five years? Will it be as big a problem? Will it be a bigger problem? I'm going to be optimistic and say it's not going to be as big a problem because of peer pressure. If we get the right officers in departments, peer pressure will take care of that. I have a saying about law enforcement and life in general as it relates to organizations. Number one, organizations mirror their leadership. Number two, personnel will do what they know they can get away with. And number three, organizations who investigate themselves never find anything wrong. So I think that organizations are going to change and their own pressure of their culture is going to make them continue now to do the right thing and weed out the people that don't need to be there. And if you're wrong and extremism becomes more pronounced, then what? If we're wrong, if I'm wrong, and I hate, dare, dare I say this publicly, then the off-duty law enforcement officers at the Capitol on January 6th will be the tip of the iceberg. They, these organizations, meaning extremist organizations, will realize that they've got a target of opportunity and a pool of opportunity with disgruntled officers to recruit from, and they will come after them as they have been for quite some time. And this problem will be much worse. Absolutely. But I'm optimistic that that's not going to happen. That was Errol Southers, a professor in the practice of national and homeland security at the University of Southern California, where he is also director of the Safe Communities Institute. You know, Gene, that was so fascinating, but it goes back a long way, this uh, white infiltration of a white extremist infiltration of police, going back to the KKK, as, uh, uh, as Southers uh, certainly uh, knows and has noted. A, a prominent former skinhead told me in an interview about a year ago about how they were always trying to infiltrate the police around Philadelphia, at least. This is a societal problem. Uh, not just a policing problem. And I, I just don't know how you root out these uh, attitudes. I, uh, the FBI has not been particularly aggressive about it, as I reported last year. Uh, as Jamie Raskin has noted, uh, uh, they refuse to declassify uh, their own uh, report on uh, Nazis, neo-Nazis and white extremists and police forces. So, boy, this is a, a big, big problem. And we got to get some kind of hold on it. I, I don't know how. Yeah, as Southers mentions, a police force reflects the society, and that's what it's doing here. He does think in California they've done a couple of things which might help. They're um, raising the minimum age for those applying for policing jobs, and also they're enhancing education requirements. And he thinks those things could have an effect. We will see. Well, that's another episode of the Spy Talk podcast. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you next week. Uh, you may note that we're on a new platform at MSW Media. You can find us there, or of course, Apple, Spotify, everywhere else where you listen to your podcasts. I'm Jeff Stein. I'm Gene Meserve. And remember, you can find Spy Talk on Substack. Take care. Have a good week. Bye-bye. 
For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.